If you'll join me in your Bibles in Jude, continue in our series through the letter of Jude. We will be looking at verses 8 through 16 this morning. If you are using the blue ESV Bible, it is on page 1027. The title of our sermon this morning is Waterless Clouds, and our keywords for our worshipers and training are woe, fruitless, and ungodliness. Now, over the past week, our, our kids have spent some time working as investigators, figuring out who the hidden hero is behind all of the great stories of the Bible in Vacation Bible School, specifically focusing on Esther. And we had a great week, and we are very, very thankful for everyone who worked to make that a success Uh, You all did a great job. And as I was thinking about the VBS theme, I was thinking about what an investigator actually does and how they work to come to their conclusions in their investigations. I was reminded of how intricate and how, how detailed the searches must often be. I am sort of a sucker myself for a really good uh, mystery story, and I'm very intrigued. I listen to true crime podcasts, and I like shows that keep you sort of hanging on until they reveal at the very end a good mystery novel to keep me up at night. Whatever it is, I enjoy those things, and I think a lot of us do. We like the idea of the hunt, of putting the clues together and finding out exactly uh, what's going on. So for, uh, for a lot, I, I think uh, for myself, one of the things I really enjoy are uh, those that are uh, crime stories of those who are hiding out in the open, those who are committing crimes and yet they are right there in front of you the whole time. I, I think the whole process behind figuring that out is fascinating, it's intriguing um, in especially in fiction cases, but there are also many that have actually happened that are, are interesting to, to learn about. Among the most intriguing to me is one a lot of you probably remember. It was a guy named uh, Dennis Rader. He went by the nickname of the BTK Killer because he bound, tortured, and killed his victims. He started killing people in the suburbs of Wichita, Kansas in 1974, and he continued for over 15 years, claiming his last victim in 1991. Now, throughout the years, his day job was installing home security systems. And he specialized, after a while, knowing people in the community were scared of the BTK killer, who was him, he started to advertise that he would protect their homes from the BTK killer. And so he went to their homes and he installed security systems and talked to the people about how panicked they were. And so his business was supposedly to help them calm their fears. Amazingly enough, during all of this time, he was married to the same woman, 34 years. She never had even a suspicion of what he was doing. Now, there are a lot of stories like this And it really says a lot about our assumptions of people, that people hide things, and and whether or not we are, are all forthcoming with others about what is going on behind the mask. Something I've noticed uh, over the years with uh, political figures or, or fallen and disgraced pastors or celebrities that quite often the thing that they rail against the most and are so adamantly opposed to is the very thing that they are guilty of. 
That's certainly not to say that we ought to be investigating everyone and uh, determining whether or not they're trying to hide something in their life, but it does raise a question that's worth considering for all of us. How do we know the truth about other people? For that matter, how do we know the truth about ourselves? As we continue in our series through this short letter of Jude, we have to embark on some investigatorial work. We need to discover who the true criminals are, some, some wicked men who pl- hide in plain sight. That's really what Jude is dealing with. You'll recall last week he deals with the consequences of those who are apostate, false teachers who are claiming a false gospel and bringing people along with them. He talked about their judgment that comes upon them when they're luring people away from the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And this morning we get a bit more into these people, into these apostates. Jude gives us some of their characteristics. So as good detectives, as investigators, where do we start? Well, there's a profile that Jude gives us. And as we consider apostasy, what we need to consider, what are the attributes we'd be looking for? If we're trying to find someone who's a false teacher, if we're looking for an apostate, what are the clues that might be present? What is the profile of a false teacher? So Jude is going to give us those attributes to consider, and we will be reminded once again of the fate of those who reject true Christian faith. So the first attribute that we see in verses 8 through 10 is that apostates are shameless. Apostates are shameless. Look at verse 8. Jude writes, Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, rejecting authority and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Now notice there are very specific things that Jude says apostates do to prove their shamelessness. You see there in verse 8, they, three things, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. He says they rely on their dreams. This is not to say that they have a dream and they make decisions based on that dream. No, he's saying they're, they're dreamers. They have their head in the clouds. Uh, they do whatever they want, however they want, based upon their own whims and desires, their own ideas. And so in that sense, they are asleep to the reality and the condition of their own hearts. They're like every other worldly person. As Isaiah says, they are in a deep sleep, snoring on their bed of ease without any sense of danger that awaits them. And so while the judgment of God hangs over their head, they continue on in complete denial of the fact that they face true destruction. And in the meantime, they continue to shamelessly live to the fulfillment of their own desires, living according to their own false delight and vain hope, that their dreams of who they are and what they want to be provide. Now remember, Jude is dealing specifically with religious leaders. 
Those who put themselves in places of leadership over the people of God in his churches. And what's clear from verse 8 is that they are outwardly rejecting God. Now that's sort of difficult to wrap our minds around, perhaps. It's not like they were rejecting God outwardly by their words. They will give you all the words that you want to know about God and how good He is and and what He's doing for them and, and how He's talking to them and telling them things and what to do and what to say. No, their rejection of God was not with their words. It was with their lives. Their rejection was the shamelessness with which they defile the flesh, they oppose God's authority, and they blaspheme the angels of God. Now, if you'll recall, we've seen over the past few weeks that one of the main things that Jude continues to point out about these false teachers who have sought to infiltrate the church is that they've been taken over by sensuality. They are sexually immoral. And in fact, they are encouraging or approving of the sexual immorality within the church. And and we see here that Jude is further elaborating on that reality. He says they defile the flesh. They use and abuse the flesh in ways that were never intended. Paul addresses this activity. He deals with this in Romans chapter 1, verses 24 and 25. He deals with the regular indulging in the perversions of the flesh. He says, Therefore God gave them up into the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Spiritual perversion is nearly always accompanied by physical perversion. When we are not abiding in communion with God, our hearts are so prone to wander away toward the immediate desires that we experience Physical, sexual desire is most often the case, and those things are natural. However, if they are unchecked, if they are unrestrained by the truth of God's Word, by the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives and the grace of God in helping us persevere in the faith, we will misuse, we will abuse, we will pervert good things and make them an idol, and like the false teachers, we will stray away into all forms of sexual perversion and sensuality. Jude also says they reject authority, which is to say, as we saw back in verse 4 a few weeks ago, they reject the lordship of Christ. Remember verse 4. It says they deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. And specifically, the way they were doing this was by abusing God's grace. They were saying, well, if we sin, it's, it's no big deal. God is going to forgive us in Christ because God is gracious and God is merciful. So we're going, we know it's sin, but we're going to sin anyway. And then we will just ask for forgiveness afterwards. We, we know, in fact, that when God uh, forgives us of our sin by His grace, that His grace abounds all the more. So why not sin all the more. Remember, Paul addressed this very thing, and he said, should we sin all the more? By no means. And and so, they were abusing God's grace. They were licentious. They were pretending as though we could do anything we want, with anyone we want, however we want, because in the end, God is just going to forgive us. And so, they saw license for immorality. And in doing so, they deny Jesus as Lord. 
In other words, they would consider the words of Jesus when he said, if you love me, you will do what I command. And they said instead, well, we do love you, but we want to do what we want to do, and we're going to do that anyway. And in the end, we define grace as being you forgiving us for doing what we do without shame, without concern for what you think. And so you, God, just have to deal with it. But that's not what grace is, is it? Grace is not Christians telling God, I'm going to sin and you have to deal with it. If you're truly a Christian, your heart will be changed. Your desires will be changed. You will want to honor God with your life. You will want to walk in obedience to Christ because your love for Christ and your thankfulness to Christ and all that He has done comes out in a sense of, of wanting to please Him. So you're not entertaining thoughts of really wanting to go out and and, and dishonor Him and rebel against Him. Your desire and your longing in life is not to be shameless in your sin, rebelling against His authority. Christians love God, and we love what God has commanded, and we want to live according to what He's commanded, because Christians know that what God has commanded in the end is really for our benefit. It is for our good. All of us have learned that lesson time and time again. When we walk faithfully according to God's Word, even when our flesh doesn't feel like it, we see in the end God blesses that. And yet when we choose our own way, when we reject the wisdom of God, we see the consequences. We experience the consequences, and they're always far worse. Now that doesn't mean it's always easy. It doesn't mean our flesh won't fight against it. But the heart's desire of a Christian is obedience, submitting to God's authority, submitting to the Lordship of Christ, even when it's difficult, even when it may simply be us saying, I don't instinctively want to do this, but I will to honor God and to glorify Him with the way I live before the world. And in the end, my obedience will bring me far greater joy than whatever it is I was chasing after in the flesh. Now Jude goes on, he says these apostate teachers blaspheme the glorious ones. What does he mean? Very simply, the angels he's talking about were understood by some to be messengers of the law. The idea was that the law was given to the people by God through angelic messengers. So they were blaspheming the angels because they were messengers of the law as they understood it. And they were wrapped up in sensuality. They were wrapped up in uh, licentiousness. They were wrapped up in sexual immorality. So the last thing they wanted anything to do with was what? The law of God. Any restraint on their activity. And so who are they going to blaspheme? The very ones that brought the law to them. So you see the relationship here between all three of these things that Jude lists. They reject the lordship of Christ, they reject the messengers of the law, and they live according to their own fleshly sinful desires. So what does all of this equate to? What is the real issue here behind these false teachers? Well, the real issue is holiness. And you know, it's interesting that This is a major issue here in the text, obviously, but it's also a huge issue today. Just as in Jude's day, many professing Christians just don't want to talk about holiness. You know, a lot of times people want to define legalism as anything more restrictive than what I myself would do. That must be what legalism is. If I I wouldn't do it, or if I wouldn't go that far 
then it must be legalism. And when we start defining problems like that as legalism, we have a false definition. And then we aren't really protecting against anything. We're distorting the place of God's law. We're abusing the grace of God. And and the place we end up is where the apostate teachers end up, and that is in licentiousness, doing what we want, how we want, because now we are the definers of what is right and good. Now, there's sometimes a mistaken notion that if we are truly gospel-centered, if we focus our efforts on the gospel, then we won't even have to talk about the imperatives or exhort Christians to live moral lives according to God's Word. Now, to be sure, there is a lot of moralistic teaching in the world. You've probably heard a lot of it because, to be very honest, the majority, and in fact, I'd say the vast majority of preaching that you will hear in our culture is not biblical gospel-centered preaching, but it is moralistic. It focuses only on moral life and not on the work of the gospel. We are so eager to not confuse, though, issues of, of wisdom and, and biblical imperatives that if we, we're not careful, we'll drop the imperatives altogether. We'll get rid of the law altogether. And so we become afraid of words like diligence and effort and obedience We've downplayed verses that call us to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling or command us to cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit or warn against even a hint of immorality among the saints. However, to to not do so, to not look at these things as they are given to us, we're in danger of being the very kinds of people the apostates were. And so many of them are today. Apostates are shameless, which means, very simply, apostates are not pursuing wholeness, uh, holiness. In fact, they don't even talk about it. Now, before we get off of these verses, what's going on in verses 9 and 10? Well, Jude is giving us another example. As you've seen several times in the letter by now, he likes to make reference to angels and is is describing things that are not necessarily found in the biblical text, but they're derived from other literature, other stories that were common in the day and the readers would have been familiar with. Now, the story Jude is referring to is a story uh, that Michael the archangel confronted the devil about the body of Moses after Moses had died. Now, Michael did not dare to issue a rebuke in his own power, but instead he says, the Lord rebuke you. Now, all that we know from the Bible about Moses' death is from Deuteronomy chapter 34, verses 5 and 6. And it says, Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there at Moab. The Lord buried him in Moab, in the valley opposite Beth Peor. But to this day, no one knows where his grave is. That's all the Bible says about Moses' death. So, there were numerous stories about what happened with him. Conservative biblical historians believe the most reliable records recount the historical understanding of what actually happened. It is said that Joshua accompanied Moses up on the Mount, uh, the Mount of Nebo, where God showed Moses the land of promise. Remember, God brought him up there, and he showed, here's the land that you will inherit. And he told Moses, not you, him. <laughs> You're going to die. So Moses then sent Joshua back to the people to inform them of Moses' death, and Moses died. Now the story picks up from there that God sent the archangel Michael to remove the body of Moses to another place and to bury it there. 
But the devil opposed him, disputing Moses' right to an honorable burial. Some even argue that the devil wished to take the body to the people to make him an object of worship. So Michael and the devil argue over the body, and the devil brought against Moses a charge of murder for murdering the Egyptian and burying him in the sand. But this accusation was no better than slander against Moses, and Michael, not tolerating the slander, said to the devil, the Lord rebuke you. And so the devil takes flight, and Michael removes the body and buries it where God had intended. It's an interesting story. But the point that Jude is making is not so much understanding whether or not all of those details are accurate according to tradition, but the the point is uh, that the dispute over the body of Moses shows Michael's response, and that's very significant. First is that Michael recognizes the limits of his power. He does not dare to rebuke the devil. It is not in his area of authority to exercise that kind of judgment. However, nor does he ascribe too much power to the devil. That's really important. A lot of people want to ascribe all sorts of power to the devil. The devil made me do it. Or the devil's here and there and doing all these things. Ah, The devil's just a pawn in God's grand scheme. And so he recognizes this is not his place to judge the devil. He, he, doesn't, he also doesn't think, though, that the devil is above rebuke. So he recognizes where true power resides. Not with him, but in the strength of the Lord. That's Jude's entire point. And he relies upon the strength of the Lord. He calls on God and he says, the Lord rebuke you. So here's the point. If the archangel of God is not willing to make use of his own power in order to win a dispute, what do we make of these false teachers? Michael acted in the right way. Verse 10 says, but these people, he's talking about the apostates, act in a way that is quite contrary to the model offered by the archangel who leaves the realm of judging to the one who is truly able to judge, who is God. So in fact, Jude goes on to say that these men, they act like animals. They're driven by irrational instincts, and in so doing, they are destroyed. They aren't wise enough to know the limits of their own authority. They take action based on the instincts that they have rather than the wisdom of God. And because their actions come from this position, they are more likely to be destroyed by their actions than helped. Now listen, this happens in churches all the time. When men who are called or appointed or appoint themselves to lead churches don't know the biblical boundaries of their authority, where they they don't have a solid grasp of what God actually calls them to lead in and how He calls them to lead... There are always disastrous consequences for themselves and for the people in the churches they are pastors of. There are many people who will willingly and joyfully take on a role of pastoral ministry because they're eager to exercise authority without knowledge. And when they do so, they're very destructive. Most often, it means that they seek to take control of the lives of people in the church, calling it 
uh, saying they're, they're, they're just exercising oversight, but they're inserting themselves into every whim, every desire, every decision, and every action made by the people under the guise of this being for their spiritual good. And most of the time, these men pride themselves not on, on, on not having any kind of uh, intervention from anyone else. They, weren't, they were called by God to plant the church. They were called by God to pastor the church. No one sent them. No one affirmed that this was the right thing. They were gifted to do this. They don't have any theological training. I don't need that. I have God. I have my Bible. They're incessantly quoting passages that call people to submit to their leadership. They have no theology of, of liberty. They're very concerned that people address them according to their, their title and recognize their authority. They're always very busy deliberating with people over all of everything that goes on in their lives, insisting that if anything other than what they've said is pursued, it's sin because they are defying spiritual authority. Now, I know of one situation where a person joined a church and the elders and deacons went to the house before they could join and they investigated throughout the house to make sure that there was nothing that they considered sinful. They looked at the books on their shelves and found anything they deemed dangerous. They made sure they didn't have alcohol or tobacco or whatever else they might find. This is a radical abuse of authority. This is the very thing Jude is addressing. In their shamelessness, these men will come in and take over people who are unaware of what the Bible says about true biblical authority and insert themselves into the place of God. They are trying to take over the role of the Holy Spirit in the lives of God's people, and they will insist that that authority is theirs. And Jude is saying when those kinds of people insert themselves into the church and try to insert themselves into your life, beware. Run away, have nothing to do with them, because they don't even have the sense of the archangel Michael to say, the Lord will handle these things, not me. There are many false teachers who would love to control your life for you. Most often because they would love to control your bank account for you. It usually turns out for their own benefit in the end on this earth. Now the next evidence that Jude gives us we see in verses 11 through 13, and that is that apostates will be known by their rebellion. Look at verse 11. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's heir and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden wreaths at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. So Jude is now shifting to give us three examples from the Old Testament to highlight the hypocrisy of the apostates. 
He begins with Cain, the first son of Adam and Eve, who killed his brother Abel because of a jealous disagreement over a sacrifice. Now surely you remember when when Abel sacrificed some of his flock of sheep to God, Cain offered him some vegetables from his farm. God accepted Abel's sacrifice and he rejected Cain's sacrifice. Now what becomes clear in the story with Cain is that Cain knew and acted out of line with God's law. And after Cain became angry, before he murders Abel, God actually asks him, Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, you will, not, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. If, you desire to have, if it desires to have you, you must master it. But even after a very clear warning from God, a very clear indictment on one who will go and sin anyway, Cain proves his unwillingness to submit to God. And so what we have in Cain is a man who is warned in the consequences of his sin by God himself, but he declares that he is going to do what he wants anyway. So what's the comparison here with the apostate teachers? As, as Jude is looking at the situation, he's saying the, apo- uh, the apostates take the way of Cain. They understand what God expects, and they will even give lip service to it by by doing something like making an offering that they know will not be acceptable. But at least to those on the outside, it looks genuine. They're rebellious hypocrites. They do what looks good and sacrificial to others, but it is in no way what God actually desires from His people. They are selfish. They're wanting to hold back for themselves as much as they are able because they want to call it theirs in the first place. Why, why, do, why do false teachers go out and do philanthropic things? Why do false teachers do things for communities that look good on the outside? Because they want people to see those things and to think that those things are them doing biblical works. They can point to them and say, look at all the people we fed. Look at the houses we built. Look at all of the works that we have done. In the meantime, through all of those works, they're raising a lot of money. And every dollar that comes in, a bit of it is shaved off to hold back for themselves. They're hypocrites. They put on a show for others to see that they can hide what they're truly doing behind the scenes. Jude then brings up Balaam, who takes Cain's sin a step further. Balaam doesn't just sin against God. He encourages others to do the same. The first mention of Balaam is Numbers 22 through 24. He's hired as a a prophet of Balak, the king of Moab, to curse Israel. Now, Balaam responds to Balak by saying, Even if Balak gave me his palace filled with silver and gold, I could not do anything, great or small, to go beyond the command of the Lord my God. Well, that sounds good, right? But a chapter later, we see that the Israelite men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifices to their gods. The people ate and bowed down before these gods. So, We read then that the Lord's anger was fierce. We see a very clear and shocking contrast between the blessing of the previous chapter and we're sort of left to wonder what happened. How did they get to that place? Well, later in the story, we find out that Balaam's advice was 
was, was given to the people, and, and it was a means of turning the Israelites away from the Lord in what happened at Peor. So the Lord struck them with a plague uh, among the people. So Balaam's greed took over. He was offered vast sums of money. He said he wouldn't influence them, but he actually did. He came in and he lied to the people and sought to turn them away from the Lord so that he could get rich. So Balaam was faced with a clear statement from God about God's intentions. He decided what mattered most was what he himself wanted. This is a biblical warning. An example of a man whose greed leads him to rebellion. He was a a hypocrite who denied wanting to rebel against God. I don't want to do that. I would never do that. And yet behind the scenes, he's willing, willing to sell God away for some silver and gold. Apostate teachers, Judas showing us, will say all the right things in public. They will make all the right overtures toward truth and what should happen and how it should happen. But they will work behind the scenes to do that which ultimately serves them the most. Another evidence we see of the apostates then is that they are greedy. They, they frequently work for their very own gain. The, the third example he gives there from the Old Testament is the rebellion of Korah. We see the seriousness build from Cain to Balaam now to an outright revolt that ends in judgment. Korah's story from number 16. He, together with the other Levitical priests, Dathan, Abraham, and On, they instigated a revolt of 250 soldiers against Moses. They, They hoped that they could overthrow him in some kind of coup so that they could take over the leadership of Moses. Their problem was with the hierarchy of leadership. They wanted to be in charge, and no one was going to stand in their way. So they even accused Moses of being arrogant. So it's a a lengthy story, but to make it short, God intervenes, and the earth opens up and swallows them and closes up behind them. There's a few things that happen in between there, but God opened the earth and swallowed them up. And the the text says they went down alive into the grave with everything they owned. The earth closed over them and they perished and were gone from the community. But the Israelites, you would think, learned something from that lesson, but they are just as dumb as you and I. And within the next few days, they had further arguments with Moses at the same place. And once again... In Korah, we have a man who considers God's order of things and decides that his own ways are better than God's ways. So what we see from Jude is this unmistakable judgment that will fall on any pastor or any teacher who loves freedom uh, with money or sex or power more than they love the faithfulness to God's word. Apostates are rebellious, And they face a horrific, ground-opening punishment that awaits anyone who succumbs to personal temptation by capitulating to cultural uh, wants and desires in an effort to compromise in the faith to accommodate people. Nothing less is at stake for those of us who call call ourselves preachers and teachers of the Word of God than what Jude is writing here. He says, brothers and sisters, hear me on this. There are people in your very day who are working to pervert the gospel. 
There are church leaders who reject God's word. There are preachers who are out for your money. There are pastors who permit you to have both Jesus and sensuality as long as you pay your offerings to them. And it's interesting how he says it. He says, they have already perished long ago. They died with Korah. They were swallowed up. And he says, these are the men, these are the ones who were eating and drinking with you. They were perverting your love feasts. He's talking about the, the Lord's Supper. He says, watch out, be careful. These men are deadly. They're out to get you. And then he goes on into this amazing literary explanation of the, apostle, uh, the apostates. Not the apostles, the apostates, and who they truly are. He says, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees and late autumn twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It's a beautiful description of a horrible thing. Anyone who abandons the faith, anyone who promotes sensuality and seeks out their own gain, or works to undo undo the true nature of authority, are clouds that cannot bring rain, are fruits that will not, are trees that will not bear fruit, and are wild waves whose shame is in finding pleasure in the exposure of a public display of what's better left hidden. These among us are those for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been kept forever. Jude is obviously writing to protect God's flock from leaders who are nothing more than waterless clouds and dry riverbeds. He knows that the health of the church depends on preachers who are truly Christians and truly possess living water, clouds of blessing that they can burst onto the heads of God's people. The stakes are very high. Well, in the end, Jude reminds us once again, as a result of all of this, that apostates will be judged for their ungodliness. We see that in verses 14 through 16. Apostates will be judged for their ungodliness. Read with me in verse 14. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. Jude is actually referencing here the non-canonical book of the Bible, uh, that was many include in the Bible, of First Enoch. And he's referencing a section that supports the teaching that God will execute judgment against everyone who perverts his ways. Now, Enoch clues us in to the idea that these false teachers were circulating in the churches their sermons. So one would say whatever they had to say, and they would give it to someone else, and they would preach that as well. and, And in that, they would say that God is a God of love, and God in no way has any wrath. That God would never condemn anyone. That God is not one who will ever judge. That no person or behavior can really be called ungodly. That unconditional love must mean that God places no demands on his children. Entering into a relationship with Christ doesn't require any meaningful life change. Now, have you ever heard anything like that from someone? 
Have you ever heard people say those sorts of things? Have you, heard, have you ever been told that uh, to tell someone that they're doing something sinful is just you being judgmental or not leaving it up to God? Now, most often, this is the very kind of thing that they're saying. They're saying to look at God's word and to rightly say what God has said in a heart of love, in a spirit of truth. It's not loving the person, it's simply being judgmental. Why? Because we need an out. We need an out for our own sin. We need an out for our own sensuality. We need an out for our own hypocrisy. We need an out for our own ungodliness. And so we give a pass to all others as well. But it is as if Jude here is shouting from the pulpit, enough with this silly notion that God will not judge anybody. The ungodly, notice how many times he says ungodly in these verses. The ungodly are everywhere, and in every generation they will be judged. Like us, Enoch lived in an ungodly day, yet he had such character that the people described him as walking with God. Are you a person who walks with God? And remember, although Enoch lived in an ungodly hour, there came a time when he was delivered from it. And he no longer was found on the earth. Where did the righteous man go? He went up into the presence of a living God, where he now dwells happily forevermore. This is encouragement, brothers and sisters, for us to remain faithful. To continue to persevere in the faith. Knowing that we are being kept by the Holy Spirit of God through the means of grace and through His kindness toward us as we strive in the journey to the narrow gate. Friends, some of you here are not believers, and I pray God's Word will work in your heart. It would be the very means that God would use to bring you to the end of yourselves, to bring you to faith, to bring you to repentance, that you might escape the judgment of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus lived a perfect life that you cannot live. He died the death that you deserve and was raised from the dead to conquer sin and death on our behalf. And by faith we can have life with Him forever and ever. We can be a people who are not declared to be the ungodly. To be a people who are not in danger of becoming the apostates. To be a people who don't live by the sensuality of the flesh, seeking to fulfill our own desires. To be a people who aren't hypocrites, who live day by day for our own desires and living a different life before the world. We can be a people who are said to be walking with God like Enoch. Verse 16, Jude brings all of this to a conclusion. In one short verse, he tells us how to see the difference between godly teachers like Enoch and all of those others in the church who are bound for destruction. He said these are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They're loudmouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. You see, what we have here in Jude is all of the clues to look for in what's being taught so that we can investigate and determine if a teacher is an apostate destined for judgment. They are out there. You will find them if you go this afternoon and turn on your television to a certain channel. You'll see all kinds of them. And so we must receive the warning from Jude with humility. May God help us to remain faithful. May God help us to finish well. May God help all of us to persist in our calling as His people to live as a faithful people walking with God. Let's pray together. 
Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the challenge of your word as we consider our own lives to consider whether or not we are walking faithfully with our God. And we pray this morning, Lord, in hopes that you would do a work in the hearts of all of your people, that you would strengthen us for the journey ahead, that you would confirm in us our faith in Christ, that we might joyfully and faithfully submit to your will and to your word, knowing you have given it to us for our benefit, that we might find all of our joy completed in Christ and not in the things of this world, and that we might bring glory unto you, our Lord and God. We pray, God, for those who are here who do not know Christ. Father, that you might work in them a desire to escape the judgment that awaits. That they would flee to you by faith. That they would repent of their sin. That they would trust in you. Father, that they would know of your love, of your kindness, of your grace, of your mercy. And yet that they would know every just judge must punish sin. It may be found that their sin has been punished in Christ on their behalf, that they not endure your judgment forever. We pray, God, you would be pleased to do that in our midst for your glory, for the building up of your church. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.